Mpaka Lofalahia too. This is Pacific Waves. I'm Moira Tuila Epitela. Coming up. They know the anxiety that their families are experiencing because they're, they're there to see it and absorb it and feel it. Students affected by the wildfires in Lahaina find it tough to return to school. Also. The way it would work is you would need a state, a government, to take an action. So, so it, it, you couldn't have Greenpeace take it or you couldn't have a citizen take it. Nations that oppose Japan's release of 1.4 million tonnes of treated wastewater into the Pacific can take Japan to court. And later... When this song came up, they just banned it from the, from the radio. They didn't want it to go public. A song about Tonga's worst modern maritime tragedy is taken off the airwaves. The Hawaii Department of Education says over 3,000 kindergarten, primary and high school students have been displaced as a result of the wildfires in Lahaina. Donata Lolesio, the principal of Sacred Hearts High School in Lahaina, which was destroyed by the fires, says many students are traumatised. Vino Fonoa spoke with Donata Lolesio about how the children of Lahaina are coping. My school is in Lahaina Town, right at the heart of Lahaina Town, and it was burnt down. It's called Sacred Heart School. So a lot of my students have been displaced and lost their home. And of the 220 students that we started the school year with on August 1st, only 100 are returning, and the rest have been scattered throughout the island, throughout the state, and throughout North, you know, uh, the mainland. Um, America. So what I'm doing now is I'm trying to return the students that are staying here on this side back to school because we just got out of COVID and now we're having to deal with wildfire. It's really important that we have to advocate for the educational, social, emotional, spiritual, developmental needs of the students. And that's something that's starting to come up now as a priority and parents are worried because the school was a second home to the children. And for those that have lost their first home, losing a second home, like a safe place for their children, a school, that's detrimental. So there's now, there's a move to make education a priority. The, the, the situation out here is dire. I mean, people are, the displaced people are moving from hotel to hotel, almost some, you know, in, in days, some in weeks. So the housing is, is a crisis. And the tourists have all been sent home. So now there's that issue with the economy. My perspective is I can't do anything about the things I can't control. But what I can, I can make sure that I follow through with my responsibility as an administrator, as an educator, which is return children back into a safe, stable learning environment and provide for their needs. Have they returned to learning Virtual classrooms? That's the biggest challenge. That's the biggest challenge now because because we know for a fact over the COVID uh, lockdowns that virtual learning is not the ideal learning situation for children. And there's been a, a very significant decline in reading and math having come out of virtual learning that it is not, it cannot be an option in a time like this for our children. They need to be with a teacher and receive in-person instructions. No matter how that happens, we need to make an effort to be able to provide that for our children. And, you know, I have to say that I am very proud to work with faculty and staff who are committed to this work 
to continue this work because I have almost half of them who are displaced themselves, but they're willing to stay on because they're committed to this work and this mission to educate children in a time like this and be a part of the solution, the healing and the rebuilding. So aside from their own emotional trauma, they're willing to put that aside and, you know, be the civil servants that they've been called to be. What we're doing is we we are coming back to um, learn in small groups. And that's starting for me and for my school. That's starting next week. For about two weeks, we are meeting in small groups to kind of slowly transition back into what it, it means to be in, into school. Because... A lot of the children have been traumatized. They have seen their, their homes burned down. They have seen people, you know, suffer in the fire. They have, some of them barely escaped the fire with their families. And they, they know the anxiety that their families are experiencing because they're, they're there to see it and absorb it and feel it. One of the things that um, I did was I met with some families and their children. And you can clearly tell they're traumatized. When you ask them, how are you? And you try to, you know, you, you try to be personable to them. There, there's no way that these children can put what they feel and how they feel into words. They've been traumatized. This is why being back in a safe learning environment is healthy for their social emotional. We need children who will be able to share what they've been through and feel like they're being supported and understood. And, um, and validated for their feelings. So when I ask them, how are you? How's your day? You know, there's no, there's little to no response, you know, whereas in the, before this whole thing, you know, there's a response, there's comfort, there's trust, there's, there's no need to worry or fear about what was happening around them. The death toll from the fires stood at 115. Professor of International Law says it's possible for a country to take Japan to court. This follows widespread backlash from nations dotted in and around the Pacific Ocean, opposing the start of a release of over one million tonnes of treated nuclear wastewater. Waikato University's Alexander Gillespie told Lydia Lewis the history of law on nuclear waste dumping and releasing is a long one, but an important one. It's quite a long story. It begins after the Second World War and the countries that had nuclear generating facilities had to dispose of their waste. And between 1945 and 1972, it was common for countries to dispose their nuclear waste into the ocean. And, and nuclear waste was, was not just low-level, it was also medium and sometimes high-level nuclear waste. And so there were there was dumps around the northeast Atlantic and down the eastern seaboard of the United States where, where countries just threw their waste in pretty terrible situations. In 1972, the international community said no more dumping of high-level or medium-level nuclear waste into the oceans. And then we started to slow, the international community started to slowly create rules over dealing with low-level nuclear waste and when it was or was not permitted. The next change came in 1997, and from that point, it's pretty clear customary policy that nations should not dispose of nuclear waste, even low-level, into the oceans. And so it's taken a long progression to get to this point. But since then, you've had the, the accident... And you've had a change because they've got to dispose somewhere of this material, this water. International law, the, the question would be whether there are 
feasible alternatives before you went to try to dump it into the ocean. I can't tell you whether it's safe or not because I'm not a scientist, but I can tell you that the IAEA has said that it is safe. And the IAEA has got a a good reputation and solid scientific processes. So what they're saying is probably correct. And what's being proposed to be put into the ocean is probably a a very low risk. Is this, though, uh, I guess modern day dumping? Because the the issue here is, and I've just been to a protest where anti-nuclear activists are calling it a dump. I mean, I've also interviewed the IAEA who says, no, this is a release. But you mentioned before, you know, any type of waste going into the ocean. So yes, they are treating it by this out-treated wastewater system, but there is still very low levels of tritium going into the water, which do comply with international standards. So what is this? So so the reason that there's so much debate around whether it's a, a dump or a release is international law would strongly suggest that the dumping of any nuclear waste into the ocean is now, as a customary rule, considered not possible. But because you can't dump it doesn't mean if you change the technology, or sorry, the terminology to one of release, it may be permissible if it's safe. And so international law would be saying you can't dump. But if it's not a dump, but it's something else like a safety release, then it may be permissible. And so the, the convention I talked about in 1972 was known as the London Dumping Convention. And it's that convention which has said no more dumping and progressively up to 1997 said no more dumping at all of any nuclear waste. And that, that's a strong rule now. And, but you're finding that countries like Japan have to find some other way around it. So the terminology has changed to make it permissible. This is all very theoretical because if you wanted to really challenge it, what you would do is you'd get one country or group of countries to stand up and take Japan to one of the dispute mechanisms under the Law of the Sea Tribunal, under the Law of the Sea Convention. The problem with that is that China has a very bad relationship with these bodies right now over what's happened in the South China Sea because one of these bodies ruled against China. So China, which is probably the foremost advocate against the dumping, is unlikely to use these mechanisms to resolve the question. Duncan Curry was in South Korea, I'm not sure if he's still there now, and was working with Greenpeace to try and get South Korea to take Japan to court under this law. They decided not to, and then I asked New Zealand, and there was a big call from activists, you know, for New Zealand or Australia too, and I asked New Zealand if they were thinking about it, and they said absolutely not. The way it would work is you would need a state, a government, to take an action. So, so it, it, you couldn't have Greenpeace take it, or you couldn't have a citizen take it. It would have to be South Korea or the Philippines or New Zealand. But the politics, which is very different to the law, which is going on at the moment, is that a lot of countries are lining up behind Japan, not just because it's probably safe, but also because of the, the larger geopolitical issues with regards to China. And so it, it's not so much about whether you think it's the right thing to do. It's about not being in support of those who are against Japan. Is it feasible that New Zealand could look at doing this? No, it, or? You, you wouldn't you'd end up in one of the dispute mechanisms under the law of the sea. Is it, is it possible that New Zealand could do it? In, in theory, it's possible. Politically, it's exceptionally unlikely because that would mean right now lining up against Japan in a very tense geopolitical environment where 
countries are trying to work more with Japan than against them. Even if we disagree with what's going on in the ocean, there are, to the minds of many, greater political objectives that have to be reconciled. And taking Japan over this issue would, would not be supportive of that. Japan maintains it has no other option. It says the people of Japan are the victims of a nuclear disaster and are dealing with it the best as they can while meeting international safety standards. New Zealand says it would not take Japan to court. The Tuvalu government is disappointed in New Zealand for taking that stand. In August 2009, one of the worst modern maritime tragedies occurred in the waters of Tonga when the inter-island ferry, the Princess Ashika, sank with the loss of 74 lives. It was revealed after the sinking that it had been known that the Ashika was a rust bucket and should not have been at sea, but the government of the time had ignored that advice. Now a recent song, intended as a commemoration of the sinking, Maile Ate Volo, by Talifolo Kinikini, has been banned by the country's national broadcaster, Tonga Broadcasting Commission. Don Weisman spoke with our Tonga correspondent, Galafi Moala, about why they would refuse to play such a song. Anything actually to do with the Ashika, uh, whether it's a song, whether it's a program or an interview or, or even the memory of it. Those in authority basically don't want that brought up. Uh, of course, the Ashika happened in 2010, and it was the worst tragedy that ever happened in Tonga. Uh, when you think it, it's 74 people died, and you put it in a scale of uh, 100,000 population, when you shifted thinking from a New Zealand viewpoint, and that's a, a lot of people compared to a, a population of 5 million and, and how, what the percentage of those that, that have passed away. But the issue with Ashika, it has been proven without any doubt that the decision to purchase the ship was just a very bad, wrong decision because they were warned not to purchase the ship. The government was. And there was a report from the Marine Department, official report in Fiji, that the ship was not suitable to sail. They made the Tongan government, and the Prime Minister, Lord Sevele, went ahead and purchased it. So it was a tragedy or an accident that shouldn't have happened. And since it happened, not only the government since then and the uh, institutions like the Tonga Broadcasting Commission have been pretty sensitive concerning the, the story of the Ashika to be brought up again. And so when this song came up, they just banned it from the, from the radio. They didn't want it to go public. And yet it's the issue that most people in Tonga still think about, and it has never been resolved as far as the government coming forth and apologizing and, and doing something that will provide a redemptive justice to the situation. I know there was an inquiry, but what was the outcome of that? I mean, did people lose their jobs or were politicians smacked over the hand? What actually happened? Yeah, what happened is the people who were not the decision makers were the people that actually caught the, the punishment. Yeah. For example, the, the captain of the ship, he lost his job. And there was also the chairman of the board that had to do with decision making on, on the ship uh, also were temporarily put aside. 
But the actual decision makers, from the prime minister, from those that said let's purchase the ship and insisted on it, were never really examined. So it was a very incomplete commission of inquiry. And, and, and those that actually were responsible for the Ashika never really uh, encountered and brought to justice. It, it was wrong to begin with, and it's still wrong, but there have never been any accounting for that wrong decision. So that's why it, it continues to become a very sensitive area publicly here in Tonga. And like you had mentioned, here is just a song that brings up the memory of the Ashika. They wouldn't play it on government radio. What about the... Um the other radio stations, are they playing the song? The other radio stations are free to play them, yeah. It's just that obviously there's a fear, of course, that if they do that, they would lose maybe government uh, advertising and government commercials and all of that. But yeah, the song is being played by other stations. And that's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget, you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. Faka Uelahi from the team here at RNZ Pacific.